This is a Federal News Network podcast. It will have things to love and hate, but it looks like the National Defense Authorization Bill will make it to passage in the remainder of the 117th Congress. But what about Friday's government funding deadline? We get the latest from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And there seemed to be sort of last-minute progress last week in the House side on NDAA. And it seems like reconciliation will work. And once again, they'll magically pull it off in time. Yep, that unbroken streak of 62 years or whatever it is looks to be continued with House passage of a compromise defense authorization bill. I would say NDAA plus because there's so many other things in here that it goes well beyond the normal scope, which is already pretty broad of authorizing defense programs at DOD and the Energy Department and elsewhere in the federal government. But there was a little bit of a hiccup, but in the end, a very lopsided bipartisan vote in favor of that in the House now heads over to the Senate, which has not said exactly when they're going to vote on it. But given how that bill usually shakes out there, I would expect a pretty bipartisan vote once they get that locked in and and scheduled and ready to go. Right. And yes, you say it has a lot of scope, for example, authorizing the FedRAMP program for cloud computing, which I guess in some way maybe affects defense, but it's a pretty big bucket this time getting through. Absolutely. And this is often an attractive vehicle for government-wide issues, especially when it comes to procurement, given that DOD is such a major um, acquisition center for the federal government. But there's also things in here about inspectors general and their authority and what the president needs to do if there's a vacancy and and, um, how you can dispense or fire one in that case, um, which is a piece of legislation that's been going around for a couple of years. And then there's also authorizations in here for other programs like the Coast Guard, intelligence programs, the State Department, water projects carried out by the Army Corps of Engineers, all of which are, you know, big and tangential related to national security or the civil side of what the Army does, but not usually core provisions included in the NDAA, which is already has a pretty broad scope. But even that defense portion is a big deal because it would authorize $45 billion more than the administration requested back when it sent up its fiscal 2023 request. Um, And that will probably feed into later debates that we still have to be had about government funding. And technically, it doesn't fund the military. It merely authorizes at certain funding levels. And those funding levels could be changed by appropriators, correct? Absolutely. And that's the thing. There's a separate authorization process. Some agencies get it every year. DOD is the big one there. Others don't get touched for a couple of years at a time. You can even think of the highway authorization as a reauthorization of the FHWA, which is a major program. So appropriators don't have to go along with what previous Congresses or even the same Congress has said about what they'd like to see authorized appropriated in the end for these programs. But um, oftentimes, if you agree on a national defense number, that can carry over to the appropriations world as well. Because I did hear a congressman on one of the cable networks the other day say something about, well, the NDAA is what funds the military. And I thought, is that what they're saying on Capitol Hill? Not exactly the fact. The key language is authorized to be appropriated, not appropriated. There are some mandatory funds that flow from this bill, but a very small percentage compared with um, the big budget that still has to be signed into law when the appropriations actually happen. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And of course, Friday, the deadline for appropriations. We're on the CR now. People, I guess, thought perhaps beyond hope that maybe some grand deal could be arrived at. But what's the outlook now? I think the safest bet for this week is that we'll see a continuing resolution giving Congress more time to figure out what to do, get past Friday's deadline, prevent a government shutdown on Saturday morning and and allow these talks to continue. Um, What's still not clear is what they can agree to going beyond that next CR. 
there has been some talks for months now about what top lines should be for the defense and non-defense side. Obviously, the NDAA gives some sort of indication of what they'd like to do on the defense side, but non-defense has remained a sticking point. Last week, Richard Shelby, who's the Republican vice chair or ranking member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, said they were maybe 25 or $26 billion apart on the non-defense side. But there's also concern among Republicans that there's been a lot of them non-defense spending outside of appropriations when you think about the reconciliation package that was passed earlier. So there's still some disagreement to work out here. There has been some talk among Democrats of releasing a Democrats only omnibus that would combine all the government spending for the departments and offer their next position on that. It's not clear if that would move or, or what would happen with that, but that might be an offer we see made early this week to kick things forward. But um, lots of question marks over government funding. Um, and the backup option, of course, could be a year-long CR. DOD doesn't like that because it wants to see some adjustments made, ability for new starts. Um, a lot of domestic agencies wouldn't like that either, um, but that could be a fallback option. Or there could just be another CR into next year where Republicans would have the House and more leverage in these discussions than they have right now, although they have leverage in the Senate because it takes 60 votes to pass one of these bills. So Republicans have a big say still. Right. And on another front in the Senate, of course, there is going to be next year a Looks like a bigger majority, slightly tiny, much bigger, except now that for the Democrats. But now that Kristen Sinema of Arizona has said, well, she's going to be an independent. I mean, she votes democratically for the most part. So is there any practical difference for the balance of power there that's discernible? Going from 50-50, what they have now, to 51-49 was a big deal for a number of reasons. One, you can have a majority on the committees. Instead of being evenly split, you'll have a one-seat edge on those committees. And when it comes to votes there, um, tied votes, you could still send a nominee or a bill to the floor. But this would make it much easier for Democrats to, to rally their support and get things through. They could also potentially issue more subpoenas because they'll have the majority to do that. In terms of operationally, the Senate Democratic Caucus has for several years now included two independents, Bernie Sanders of right. Vermont. Angus Keene of Maine. They have operated as Democrats in a lot of ways. In fact, Bernie Sanders has been chairman of the Senate Budget Committee um, and was managing the reconciliation bill. He's not a formal Democrat, but he's been part of the caucus. Kirsten Sinema did say she, I think the indication is she's going to stick with the Democratic caucus, but have that eye after her name. And when it comes to running again in 2024, would have an eye under her name if she does that. But operationally, she would still be part of the Democratic caucus as, as far as we know, and um, would just, you know, operate more like those other two senators. So you you have a Democratic caucus that's technically going to be 48 Democrats and three independents. But um, if they stick together, they'll have a lot of power to, to get things done, although they'll still need nine Republicans for anything that's filibusterable. Yeah, I always wondered why they those two senators, Bernard Sanders and Angus King, do act as independents. I never understood the practical benefit of that. It's part of their brand. I mean, Bernie Sanders used to describe himself as a democratic socialist, um, and that kept him outside the democratic mainstream, but he's been an independent in the House and the Senate. Angus King won as governor as an independent and ran that way for the Senate, and I think that's just part of his identity. And there's been a handful of independents in the past or third parties that made their way into the Senate, and, um, you know, it's, it's a body where People can do their own thing and, and be individuals and independent in a lot of ways. But um, it would be interesting to just see how that plays out. And the new makeup, essentially 51 to 49, I mean, in effect, still, 
would then speed things up for nominees, right? It would speed it up. You'd have fewer of these votes to just charge the committee, which we've seen many of, because a a deadlock in a committee just means that you have to go to the floor and get a majority there. Um, One person who could benefit from a 51-49 Senate the most is Kamala Harris, who has had to be on hot standby. Anytime a vote might have needed her, you know, tie-breaking vote, which she has cast a lot in her first two years as vice president. Um, She could still be called upon, though, because if Manchin swings to the vote with the Republicans on a particular issue or nominee, she still might be needed on the floor to get something out or or something moving. So, again, 51-49, they'd much rather have that than 50-50, but there could still be a lot of really close votes in the next two years. And unlike last year at this time, this is the end of the two-year Congress, and we do move to the 118th. And so there's a lot of preparation that goes on for that, too, isn't there, between now and New Year's? Absolutely. We've seen party elections in both chambers where um, a lot of the the top people were returned in the Senate side with a few new faces peppered in. Um, Obviously, on the House Democratic side, we had the generational change with Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer stepping aside from leadership. Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, Pete Aguilar joining leadership, and they'll be the faces for that party next year. And there's a lot of behind the scenes work on the committees who will be the chairman and ranking members. Um, A lot of changes in the House side, obviously, with the flipping party control. But who holds the gavels will decide what bills to take up, what hearings to hold um, and all sorts of things going into next year. And they are due to start on January 3rd, bright and early in the new year. So they have to do a lot of that groundwork today to get ready for that. And for people retiring like Richard Shelby and Patrick Leahy, it's almost like your sleds have skipped the snow and now you're on asphalt. <laughs> it's over real fast. Exactly. But uh, they have an important job to do and one they're really uh, really pushing toward getting something done on spending before they leave and, and hand something over to their successors. But, you know, it's an interesting time to be on your way out the door. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on, a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired. And, um, 
I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks. 
uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.